0: By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information.
1: Welcome to Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. I'm William Foster, a vice president with Moody's Sovereign Risk Group in New York, and I'm your host for today's podcast. On today's show, we're going to talk about rising government debt levels, an issue that's central to how Moody's Sovereign Risk Group assesses credit risks for countries around the globe. Outside of major periods of war, the coronavirus pandemic has led to an unprecedented surge in government debt levels. The numbers are truly staggering. In 2020, the global total of outstanding general government debt grew by around $13 trillion to just over $83 trillion as governments dramatically increased spending to combat the virus and protect households and businesses from economic disaster. But even before the pandemic, government debt levels had been climbing for a decade from around $50 trillion after the global financial crisis and $35 trillion just before the crisis. All in, global government debt has increased by about 2.5 times from 2007 to 2020. That's a tremendous surge in government debt levels. Looking ahead, the trend will continue at a fast pace in 2021. And for the first time in decades, governments will surpass non-financial corporates as the sector with the largest outstanding debt burden globally. Bringing debt levels down will be no easy fix and many countries will likely grapple with the fallout for years to come. For more on this topic, I'm very pleased to welcome two guests, who've studied this issue particularly closely. Richard Cantor, Moody's Chief Credit Officer in New York, and Marie Drone, a Managing Director in the Sovereign Risk Group in London. Welcome to you both. Hello,
2: Bill. Good to you.
1: Hey, Bill. Thanks for having us. So Richard, I'd like to start with you as the Chief Credit Officer overseeing the broad multi-sector universe that Moody's covers. How and why have government debt levels
0: grown so much? We've seen a ratchet effect at play where a crisis occurs, governments incur a lot of additional debt. It's a one-time increase in debt, but it's not reversed in the years that follow. Uh, This was the case for many countries following the global financial crisis. And as far as we can tell, most of the increase in debt we've seen during the COVID recession is unlikely to be reduced over the next few years. And Why is that? We normally see political resistance to any increase in taxes or reduction in spending. But there is an added reason, I think, why politicians have been less aggressive in trying to reduce public debt in recent years. And that is because they haven't felt any pressure from the capital markets to do so. In fact, just the opposite. Because saving rates have been rising across the aging populations of the developed world, the demand for bonds, has grown more quickly than the supply. And so interest rates have been trending down. That's a really
1: important point. Turning to Marie, I mean, you cover Sovereign specifically, managing director in the Sovereign Risk Group. Why does this matter for governments?
2: Well, it matters in many ways, but really, I've mentioned two. One positive, maybe somewhat surprising there, and one less so. The positive aspect is what Richard mentioned that Over time, over many decades, financial markets and governments have probably learned to live with higher debt levels. And that gives flexibility to governments about how to manage their budgets. And as an increasing number of governments are looking at investing in in very long-term projects around climate resilience or around social inequality, then the returns on these projects are unlikely to be immediate. And having that capacity to, at least for some time, carry a higher debt burden gives them that flexibility. The less positive aspect is then a shock comes and not only do we see a drift up, but what we see is a big step up. And certainly the pandemic was a reminder of that, an example of that. But then the question is what happens in the years subsequent to that, if that shock is not in one, at least partially, then some governments are going to face the next shock with less fiscal room, less flexibility, because they will have that much of of a higher debt burden. And that part is is really what we are focusing on at the moment. In these years, hopefully soon post-pandemic, the capacity of governments to rein in at least part of the COVID-related debt increase.
1: And Richard, when you think about this in the bigger picture across the economy, how does this cascade and impact other debt issuers outside of government issuers?
0: When government debt rises, those governments lose the capacity to support the private sector in other ways in times of crisis and in times of need. Unused debt capacity may be needed to fund major infrastructure projects or to support troubled sectors of the economy, such as failing banks or industrial companies, the benefit of fiscal space was evident during the pandemic when some countries could readily afford to spend aggressively on public health measures and support private consumption and others could not. And it was also evident during the global financial crisis when some governments were able to support bank creditors and others were not. Yeah, I mean, you hear the term
1: crowding out often used and it's, it's an open question often in, in various economies to what extent government debt levels can end up crowding out other borrowers. But Marie, turning to you, I and mean, we think specifically about advanced economies, and we know there's an important distinction between advanced economies and emerging markets. Why is it that some or many advanced economies are more capable of carrying higher levels of debt?
2: Let me start first with the, the, the common elements there before I get to the, the, the distinction. First, debt dynamics are are driven by the same factors, advanced economies or emerging markets. It's the fiscal balance, so the difference between revenue and expenditure. It is growth and it is interest, which is part of the expenditure. And for emerging markets, it is also exchange rates because a big part of their debt is in foreign currency. Now, these factors tend to materialize in very different ways for advanced economies and emerging markets. And that's really where the difference is. And again, I'll go back to the example of the pandemic, which the, the dust is far from settled, but we do see very stark distinction, where for advanced economies, the jump in debt has been essentially driven by their additional spending during the pandemic to support the economy. While emerging markets have not been able to go on with that spending, they've been constrained, and their debt has increased because of lower growth. As
0: I was saying earlier, there's been a Great supply of global savings over the last decade, which has kept interest rates low. And and emerging markets have benefited from that global savings glut as well. That's helped them grow, but it did lead to more debt in the emerging markets. And it did put them at a bit more risk than we think is true for the advanced economies, because that savings supply represents the savings of people who want to retire in advanced economies. And they actually would prefer to have safe investments denominated in their own currencies. Yet during this period of low interest rates, they've invested somewhat in emerging markets. And that's true in good times, but in bad times, we'll likely see a lot of those fundings be repatriated. And emerging markets don't really have the depth of domestic financial markets to finance all their government debt internally. When we think about rising
1: debt levels around the world, are countries that have become more indebted in general now
0: at higher risk of default? It's a great question, Bill. It's a tough one. Government debt, as you mentioned, has really jumped. from One measure is 88% of GDP to 105% of global GDP. That's a whopping 20% increase. And yet, despite all this increase in debt, debt affordability, what governments actually have to pay in interest payments, have modestly trended down. This is not as surprising as it might seem at first blush because interest rates have declined more than 20% over the past few years. And the outlook for debt affordability remains favorable even further going out a few years. That's because we expect to see some high interest, high coupon debt mature and rolled over at even lower rates in the next few years.
1: How likely is it that positive trends in debt affordability will ultimately be reversed as inflation and interest rates rise and normalize in the future.
0: We do expect to see some higher inflation and some higher interest rates going forward. Now, will that really increase the cost of borrowing for governments Well, it depends a bit more on the so-called real interest rate than the nominal interest rate. That is the interest rate you pay after accounting for inflation, because government revenues tend to rise with inflation. So just because interest rates rise, as long as government revenues rise faster, then they'll be able to pay the debt service. So we think tracking the real interest rate going forward is the key to knowing whether affordability will remain strong. So Marie, from a sovereign risk angle, how do you think about
1: debt affordability?
2: I think it can be quite intuitive when you think that governments will pay interest as this is not optional. And then they look at what is left of their revenue collection to spend in other areas. That's really why debt affordability matters. It's really, again, a question of flexibility, how much room there is for spending on other areas than repaying the debt. And I think Probably related to what Richard said earlier, the current very low interest rates by government time give them time to adjust their budgets in a post-pandemic world. And according to our analysis, we have another two or three years. There is some inertia there in debt affordability because government contract debt at quite long terms, five, six, ten years or more in some cases. So it will be another two, three years where governments will benefit from today's low interest rates before we start seeing a reversal and before we start seeing then the, maybe the tougher choices on what to spend the budget on.
1: So as we mentioned earlier, there's a big distinction between advanced economies and emerging markets in terms of how you approach issues around debt sustainability, but we've also seen a very significant growth in emerging market debt issuance across sectors, but it's certainly within the sovereign space. Marie, you look at this issue very closely. Your team has done a lot of research on this topic. Can you explain why these dynamics are different in emerging markets and what are the key risks that you're looking at?
2: Typically, debt sustainability is not much of a question for advanced economy when we think about debt sustainability as a government being in control of their debt path. And emerging markets are less in control for various reasons, in part because things can move much more rapidly for emerging markets. Things can be exchange rates, interest rates, revenue tend to fall and rise a lot more suddenly in emerging markets than advanced economies. And so not all of that is really within the government's control. And that means the situations can change quite quickly. And debt that is moderate today can look a lot higher in the space of just a few years. Post-pandemic, what we are looking at is emerging markets with typically record high debt burdens compared to what they have experienced managing and uncertainty about the pace of recovery, in particular in the revenue basis that have been significantly affected.
1: One of the key issues, obviously, for emerging markets that's different than many advanced economies is that they also tend to borrow in foreign currency, which creates an added layer of risk with regards to exchange rates. Does this really matter for countries that can borrow in domestic currency? There's a distinction there. I mean, why worry about defaults if you're issuing a domestic currency versus foreign currency and countries that have their own central banks, they can just print their own money. Why would they need to worry about repaying debt?
0: We often get asked, why is it that Moody's typically rates foreign currency debt and domestic currency debt the same? Isn't foreign currency debt for emerging markets much riskier? And while it's technically true that a country with its own central bank can typically money finance its... Domestic currency debt. It could always print money to pay off its domestic debt. To do so, though, would likely bring on hyperinflation or a foreign exchange crisis. And these are terribly unpopular in most countries. And that's why we've seen over the past 30 years that the incidence of default on domestic currency debt is actually very similar to the incidence, the frequency of default on foreign currency debt. And that's why we tend to rate them about the same. So, my final question for both of you as a
1: parting thought. As we emerge from the pandemic, what would you say is a key issue that investors should be focused on as policymakers grapple with large government debt burdens in the future?
0: You know, we talked earlier about how two things are going on at the same time. We've got this rise in government debt. At the same time, there's been a gusher of private savings, which has been driving interest rates down. And actually, it's also been leading stock markets to appreciate. We've been seeing equity prices rise and P.E. ratios go up. And what that's all about is that a lot of people want to move their consumption today into the future, like planning for their retirement. So they're looking for investments that will take their wealth today and move it into the future. And they're using government paper, government bonds, and private equities to achieve that. At the same time, there's been little business fixed investment going on and government paper doesn't actually deliver necessarily more output in the future either. So there is a concern that when all these retirees look at their assets and say, now I want to liquidate them, there really won't be enough consumption goods to go around. And we could have a major financial crisis as those asset prices collapse at some point in the distant future.
1: Richard, you just raised some really interesting points and left us with plenty to contemplate. Marie, what do you think?
2: What is top of my mind is is slightly different, but I think related in the long-term horizon. Financial market participants are are really increasingly looking at integrating ESG in credit analysis and including in analysis of government debt path. And been thinking about this as when a government contracts debt, we try to assess the, the return on that investment, the growth, the economic return on that investment. In an ESG context, that remains, but some of the returns might materialize not so much in terms of growth generated as in terms of really severe downsides being avoided, whether it is physical climate change or disorderly transition to low carbon or some social risk that would be erupting without that investment. That I find it really interesting. It's a different approach. It's maybe more a scenario analysis, more looking at a what if, what would happen without that investment, without that debt, as opposed to the baseline, the direct growth benefits of the investment that, investment that governments are doing.
1: Thanks, Maria. I and mean, that's a great point about ESG. And I think one thing I would just add on the social front is, you know, looking forward, has the world changed materially in countries where? Because of this shock, because of the role governments have played, both in supporting health and fighting the pandemic, but also just household balance sheets and jobs. Is there a changing social contract between societies and governments and that there's an expectation now for increased, more structural and permanent spending moving forward? We don't know, but we're certainly seeing some trends politically in places like Latin America and other parts of the world where this may be indeed a more permanent shift toward increased spending and possibly higher fiscal deficits that would lead to debt. Marie and Richard, you have been two very interesting guests. Thanks so much for coming on the show and for details on this topic and to explore more of our research, please visit the Big Picture topic page on Moody's.com. You can find the link in the show notes. And thanks for listening. Please join us in a few weeks' time for the next episode of Moody's Talks, The Big Picture.